justified. What does it mean when we use that church word, justified, what does it mean to be right with God? But maybe as a way to prime the pumps of your minds to get you engaged, let me ask you this. How many of you are willing, <laughs> by show of hands, to say, I like movies? Ah, okay, a bunch of courageous people. That's awesome. And, and, and again, think about what you like about movies. In fact, I would say that most of the world, the reason we like a good book or a good TV show or a good movie is because the really good ones tend to clearly make for us that there's a clear bad guy and a clear good guy. Those make sometimes for the greatest movies. And a really good storyteller, a good screenwriter, a good author knows how to dress those characters so that there's a twist that holds the people's attention right through it. You know when we say it was a real page turner or I was gripped by that show or that movie. Well, what if I told you that really Hollywood or literature has really actually been imitating Jesus? Because Jesus was the best of storytellers. He could take parables and he could take life situations and he could draw them that would quite literally shock a crowd. And they could not look away. They could not help but respond. And so today in Luke 18 verses 14, sorry, 9 to 14, we're going to look at two men. One's a really good guy. One is a really bad guy. And they both pray... One a very long, God-thanking prayer. The other one a very short and desperate prayer. Then they both leave. And one is completely the same. The other is completely different. Now, wow, you're telling me that two dudes each prays and that how and what they pray makes them complete difference in their destiny? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And the characters, these two men, are not what you think they are. You see, culture views them very, very, very differently. And the truth is, if we are all honest here, every man and woman here, we all have a reaction to the characters of this passage when I read it in Luke chapter 18. In fact, I would say, if you actually take stock of your life, whether it's a day, an afternoon, a week, a month, you will find that we are a people who react. We are a reacting people. We are constantly reacting to all types of things. And that's why books, TVs, movies are so popular. That's why Twitter and Facebook and all these things are so popular because we love to see things and then we love to react to those things. And we have things that go viral and all that, even from a silly pussycat and the way his or her face looks. And millions of people will react to see said pussycat, especially if Facebook tells you this is cool. We are constantly reacting. Everybody here, every one of us, whether you are conscious of it or not, we all live by some sort of code. We all live by some grid by which we live life and by which we process life and how it happens to us. How you watch the news, how you treat people, how you want to be treated how every one of us sees the world around us, how you make sense of everything that you have read or heard or experienced. Well, in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, you're going to meet two guys. One is a Pharisee. The other is a tax collector. Before I read the passage, I want to make sure I give you the color of these characters. The Pharisee. 
Well, he was a part of a group, probably the best-known Jewish group of all the readers of the New Testament. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you are introduced to Pharisees over and over again. The Pharisees emphasized faithfulness to the Torah, which was the Hebrew Scriptures. They wanted you to study the Scriptures and be obedient obedient to the law they assigned authoritative status in fact they would give oral rules to this law and when they brought it all together it was called in Matthew 15 the tradition of the elders they eventually would take all this oral law write it all down and bring it into a system of Judaism known as the Mishnah basically that's the commentaries about the word of God These were the Pharisees. Now, so for us in the 21st century at this church, at Christians, who would our Pharisees be? Well, let me shock you. Maybe it's John Piper or the other John, John MacArthur. Maybe it's Joyce Myers or Joel Olstein. Maybe it's David Platt or Warren Worsby. Maybe you think much of and think highly of Chuck Swindoll or David Jeremiah. Maybe you've grown up watching Jack Van Impey or Charles Stanley. Maybe for our younger people, you're all about Francis Chan or Tim Keller or D.A. Carson. Maybe our ladies love to read and listen to Beth Moore or Kay Arthur. Anyone that we view as very righteous very knowledgeable and even authoritative on the scriptures. That's a modern look of what Pharisees may have looked like in the first century, how they were viewed. We see them naturally as good people, the kind of people we would like to listen to, have coffee with or hang out with. Why? Based purely on what we know of them from afar. Purely the externals that we hear about or we think we know about them. The problem is in our modern society, we draw and invest all this into all these people. And what happens when one of them falls? The whole church shakes, doesn't it? You see, friends, the Pharisees were a group who had a great start. In fact, if you study Jewish history at all, it's amazing. Some people believe the Pharisees came into being first with Ezra in the Old Testament. But the fact remains, they came into being as a people who wanted to know the Bible the Hebrew Scriptures. They wanted to be separate to God. They wanted to obey God's law. They were to become a group that would teach and have a large influence over common Jews. The Jew of the first century looked up to, they admired, they trusted the Pharisees. They started well. They really did. But over the centuries, they degraded And by the time you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Pharisees have become the greatest opposition to the ministry of Jesus. Oh, they're not the major players in the actual crucifixion. That was the Sanhedrin, the high priest's office. But they are often portrayed as narrow-minded legalists in Matthew chapter 23. Or even as hypocrites who don't follow their own teaching. In the same chapter, when Jesus pronounces his woes, he actually charges the Pharisees. So that's one group. That's one guy. Then there's this tax collector. (laughs) Now he's the consummate bad guy. He is the music. Whenever his face shows, it goes dun-dun-dun. All right, that's the way it works. Tax collectors in the first century were traitors to Israel. They were Jews who went to work for Rome. The, the, The oppressed 
was working for the oppressor to take money and exploit the oppressed. They stole money. They manipulated others for their own gain and control. They were so hated and despised in our Bible that they couldn't even be witnesses in court. They were considered pathological, chronic liars. They were hated. In fact, the greatest shock of this passage is that Jesus would actually tell a story where a Pharisee and a tax collector were in the temple together at the same time. That would have shocked the disciples, shocked his audience. Now, in our context, who would be a a tax collector? Well, let me give it a stab. Think of the most notorious drug dealer of St. John's. Maybe go downtown and find out who is the most powerful pimp downtown. Someone who deals in the sex trade. Maybe a strip club owner or someone who gambles and holds uh, all these markers for people and, and they exploit others or they enslave them or they use his or her power to gain over them. That's a tax collector. Someone that when we even see them, we kind of fear them and hate them simultaneously. That's a tax collector. Are you starting to get the picture? Are you starting to see the contrast of a Pharisee and a tax collector? But I want to give you something to take home, all right? Let's, here's what I want you to get from this sermon. Here it is. This is what Jesus is driving at in Luke chapter 18. Here's it, here it is. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? That's our church word. We've got a whole whole host of them, right? You need to be converted. You need to be born again. You need to be saved. Well, what, what does that mean? We get that, I think, from Acts chapter 16 when the Philippian jailer is there and he says to Paul, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Maybe another way to say it is, what does it mean to be justified by God? How can every one of us know when we leave here today, me and God... We're good. That I'm, my life is good. Like God says, we're good. So I actually don't have to fear death. For a, a younger pastor, I guess, well, maybe not younger. I feel younger. I'm 43, so I don't know if that makes me middle-aged or what. I, had, I was at Davy's birthday party yesterday with Mona, and she called me a young whippersnapper, so I'm going to cling to that for now. All right? Um, But I'm amazed at 43 how much death I've been around. I was telling the folks at the birthday party, I've done the funeral for a six-day-old baby, and I've done the funeral for a 105-year-old man. And I've literally done everything in between. And yet everybody is kind of wondering the same thing. How do I know I'm right with God? How do I know that if my life ends either suddenly or prolonged, or whatever, that I'm right with God? And I have been in hospital rooms where people have gone into eternity and they don't know if they're right with God. And I cannot, I lack the giftedness to describe the look of terror on their face. And I've been with people. I was with Debbie's cousin who was 16 years old when he died. And he knew his Savior, and it literally was a celebration in his hospital room as he went to Jesus. I've seen both extremes. What does it mean to be right with God? Now, the other thing I want you to take away from this is personal. Am I acting like a Pharisee? Am I acting like a Pharisee? 
because you're going to find out that who we think the good guy is and who we think the bad guy is, Jesus is going to do a little switcheroo. All right? So we want to ask that in, or to put it differently, who or what am I trusting in? When Charles Spurgeon preached from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, here was the title of his sermon, Too Good to be Saved. Too Good to be Saved. So I want you to understand all of that. I want you to see this Pharisee and this tax collector. Imagine a well-respected, well-to-do man who has done everything right and this, this drug dealer, this pimp, this guy who probably deals in drugs and gambling and the sex trade, and they're there. Now, see this as we turn to Luke 18. Let's look at verse number 9 where Jesus says, He told this parable, so this is a story. This is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. All right. He tells this parable, notice this, to some, and here's the some, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, so they thought, me and God are good. Okay, But notice this, what's worse, and treated others with contempt. So this is the reason he tells this, because there were some who said, we're good, I might not be perfect, but we're good, and I definitely know this, I'm better than them. That was their attitude. And so Jesus says, okay, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, one a tax collector. The Pharisee, notice this, standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you. I thank you, Father, that I am not like other men. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not an extortioner or unjust or an adulterer or even like this tax collector. Now, notice where he puts the tax collector. He says, I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. Then there's the tax collector. That's where that guy rated in this fellow's mind, okay? Or even like this. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And Jesus says, but the tax collector, now notice the difference, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says to the sum, I tell you, sum, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Then he wraps it up in a proverb. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now I want you to see, you know where the climax of this movie, this TV show, this book comes to. It's when Jesus says in verse 14 that the one went down to his house justified and the other one didn't so this parable is about how do you know you're right with God and how do you know you're not right with God you see there are three things that we need to see about the sum in verse 9 that those people that trusted in themselves that they are righteous you see they are represented by the Pharisee the good guy you'll notice that Pharisees believed they were morally correct they believed they were religiously correct and they were thankful to God for it 
being justified is a key thing to know and understand. It's throughout all of the Gospels. Jesus will proclaim that he and he alone can justify and save, while the Pharisees will claim he can't. And that's the tension. But I want you to see this borne out. If Actually, take your Bible and look at the beginning of chapter 18. It starts with another parable about this widow who's been unjustly uh, she's, she's got not justice, she's, she's got a beef, and she goes to this unjust judge, and Jesus begins by saying, you should always pray and not faint. And so this widow, she bugs this guy and bugs this guy and bugs this, and not because he's a good guy, he says, you know what, she's a nuisance, and she annoys the heck out of me, and to shut her up and make her go away, I will give her justice. And God, Jesus says, if an unjust judge will do what's right just to get rid of an aggravation. How much more will God who is just do things for you? So he starts by teaching people, God answers prayers of saints. Amen? All right. Y'all awake? Here we go. All right. God answers prayers of saints, right? Amen. There we go. Bruce, praise the Lord. You and me, man. Right? There we go. Now, our passage is... Now he gives about this tax collector and this Pharisee. What Jesus is teaching now is, oh, by the way, and God answers the prayers of sinners. God doesn't just answer the prayers of saints. He answers the prayers of sinners. And then you see this because you'll see this display of humility in the very next verses, in verses 15, 16, and 17, because people bring their little children to them. The disciples miss it because they want to stop it. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Listen, you see these kids? That's what you got to be like if you want to be justified. Because kids, they just come running. They know that you are problem solvers or gift givers, and they just come to you. They know they can't, and they know who can. So they go to who can. And Jesus is saying this. Then the very next story is now real life because it's the rich young ruler. It's the Pharisee in real life. This ruler comes and says, I have done everything I'm supposed to do. Then Jesus reiterates the gospel in verse to the end of the chapter. He heals this beggar, again, representative of the tax collector. And then wouldn't you know it, chapter 19 starts with a tax collector. A guy named Zacchaeus. If you've been around church at all, right? A wee little man was he, right? We've, we made a Sunday school song about Zacchaeus because he climbed up in a sycamore tree. But this was real life. So this parable is like a hinge that swings all of chapter 18 and 19 on its axis so we understand what Jesus is talking about. So here's the sermon in a sentence. To be right with God is to acknowledge that one is a sinner before God and asking for mercy. That's how you know if you are saved or converted or born again or if you're right with God. You have come to God and said, I am a sinner and I need mercy. Now notice the end though. It's not trying to convince God you're good enough. And notice, or make excuses for your actions. So a sinner doesn't go and say, Lord, I'm a sinner, I've messed up, protect me. But if you knew, God, what my life was like, if you knew what my mom and dad were like, if you knew how I was bullied in school, if you knew how I was poor growing up. No, no, the sinner just says, nothing. Here I am, sinful and a sinner, and I need mercy. And mercy, remember the difference between grace and mercy. Grace is when God gives you something you don't deserve And he doesn't owe you anything. 
Mercy is when he doesn't give you what you do deserve. So the tax collector says, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector says, oh God, don't do to me what I deserve. That's what he's saying. So remember what I said at the beginning. Quickly, number one, religion has head knowledge but no heart. Religion has head knowledge but no heart. In our passage, these, this Pharisee could interpret the law. This Pharisee had likely memorized the entirety of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He could likely quote it for memory. Good Jewish families, by the time a Jewish boy turned 13 for his bar mitzvah, he had to quote the Torah for memory. So that's what these Pharisees knew. They were followers, they, they, and they wanted good things. Pharisees believed that the temple should be in everybody's home, that, that a house was a temple, that every table and altar and every man or woman in a home was a priest. And so this was a good thing. But look at the prayer of the Pharisee. In two short sentences in our passage in verses 14 and 15, notice what he says, sorry, verses 9 and 10. He says to himself, I, five times, five times. Look at what he says. He says, I thank you that I am not like other men. Down in verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Five times in two sentences, it's all about him. The prayer, as one commentator says, the Pharisee's prayer is so laden with self-congratulation that it can hardly get off the ground, let alone to, the go- to God. But notice how Jesus describes these two guys in our passage in verses 9 to 14. He only uses five words to tell us about the Pharisee's stance, his character. He just basically says, two men went up and he says, the Pharisee standing by himself, that's all you get. And then there's 29 words of his prayer. Whereas the tax collector, Jesus uses 19 words to describe the character and the stance of the tax collector and his prayer is only six words. You see the complete reverse. This Pharisee prays, I am financially honest. I don't cheat on my taxes. I am just in all my dealings. I don't cheat on my wife. And that's what I mean by a moral righteousness. He's basically saying, I am an upright man, at least outwardly. And friends, this is what Jesus meant when he said that he trusted in himself that he was righteous. He was morally upright. He kept the commandments He knew what the Bible said, and he did it. To put it plain and simply, he really trusted in his knowledge and obedience to make him right with God. He did not claim to be perfect. He did claim to be good. I want you to catch that. This man could not only recite these books of the Bible, but he knew the oral and written law. He took this stuff very seriously. So these folks knew the Bible. This guy could recite it. He felt they could, he could obey it. But remember, in our passage, Jesus says he didn't go home justified. Why? Because number two, religion is only concerned about being externally correct. Religion is only concerned about being externally correct. Notice verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I wish you could understand how explosive this was. When he says, I fast twice a week, it was only a requirement of the law to fast one day a year on the Day of Atonement. This guy says, I fast twice a week. He's basically saying to God, I fast 
100% better than you require. I fast a minimum of 104 times a year. And then he says, I tithe of all that I get. Now, I wish I could help you understand that. He's not saying, I just give 10% of my paycheck. He meant he gave 10% of everything. Pharisees gave 10% of the herbs of their garden. If you gave them something, they would tithe off it just in case you didn't. That's how strict they were. So when this guy says, I give tithes of all that I get, he means it. He was religious. He, all these ceremonial acts of fasting and tithing, this guy was into it. He was meticulous in his religious observances. This man's religion was part of his righteousness. He was morally upright. He was religiously devout. And that's what his confidence was before God. It's what gave him the confidence to stand and pray alone and even to thank God that he was not like this tax collector. And notice, religion is thankful to God, but for all the wrong reasons. See, in our passage, the Pharisee believed that his righteousness, this righteousness of his, was the gift of God. Look at verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. He gives God the credit that he's not like other guys. He tells God, God, thank you for making me upright and devout. I thank you that I'm moral and I'm religious. And this is an important part to understand. This man is not a person who believes he can make himself righteous without God's help. So the Pharisee doesn't believe he's good on the inside apart from God. Nor does Jesus present him as a legalist, one who tries to earn his salvation. That's not the issue. Make sure you see this distinction. This man was morally upright. He was religiously devout. He believed God had helped him make him so. He gave God thanks for it. And that is what he looked to and trusted in for him being right with God. And he was dead wrong. One commentator says, the problem is not whether the man himself has produced the righteousness he has or whether God has produced it. The problem is he trusts in it. He trusts in his righteousness. This is his confidence because look at it. Verse 9, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now make sure you get this. He is not saying that the Pharisee is trusting in himself to make himself righteous. No, he's very clear. He is thanking God for that. He's not trusting in himself to make himself righteous. He is trusting in himself that he is righteous with the righteousness that he believes God has worked in him. That's what he's trusting. And here's the massive problem with, with that. If you believe in that, you don't need Jesus. That's the subtle but cataclysmic result of believing this way. You don't need Jesus which is exactly what he did need. It's exactly what the world needs. Kent Hughes, the pastor, says, many professing Christians today make the same error as the self-righteous Pharisee. They thank God that they are not living sinful lives. The prayer is good in a restricted sense. Such prayers begin well enough. God, I thank you for your saving grace that has changed my life. But then they regard living out their lifestyle as due to their own effort. Lord, I thank you that you've saved me. Now, Lord, let me tell you how I've really worked hard for you this week. And Lord, let me tell you, I'm not perfect, but Lord, I want to pray for brother so-and-so because he doesn't get it like I do. 
And don't look at me like you've never done it, because we've all done it. In the words of verse 9, we become confident in our righteousness, and we look down on everybody else. Literally, the words mean utterly despised, because listen, comparative side glances and lips pursed in disapproval reveal a terrible interior delusion. Listen, a life that finds security in comparison is deluded. Very few people ever come to me and go, Pastor, I'm struggling, or wants to tell me. I love it because everybody wants to share with me a prayer request, usually about somebody else. Lord, I need you, Pastor, I need you to pray for brother so-and-so. He struggles with this. And I love to go, really? That's awesome. I'll pray for him. What do you struggle with? And very few people come and say, you know, Pastor, I'm struggling because compared to God, I can't measure up. Few people compare themselves with God. They compare themselves with other people. And that's what we have to be careful of. So now let's bridge the gap. What does it mean to be justified or who or what am I trusting to be justified? The Pharisee trusted in himself. He even wrapped it up with morality and religion and even thanksgiving to God. I love that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that I'm such a good guy. Thank you. You must be pleased that I'm on your team. Like, look, you've chosen well, Lord. Like, that's really the essence of it. This good man is really self-absorbed. He wants to stand out. He finds security in comparison, comparing himself with others he's, that he knows he's better than. And he's devout with a bad attitude. He's like, Lord, I fast and I tithe because that makes me better than that guy. But it's not like I rejoice to do this. No, Lord, I labor to do this so that you will know I am better than him. It completely belittles or forgets that only God is holy. But notice the stark contrast beginning with this tax collector. The tax collector standing far off. I wish you understood what that meant. He likely just stepped inside the court of the Gentiles, which was massive. Likely over a million people could be on the Temple Mount. This guy probably stands just inside because likely anybody would see him in there would say, what are you doing here? Why are you here? You don't deserve to be here. That's what they would have said to him. So he stands afar off. He would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He wouldn't even glance towards the temple. But instead he beats his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus, as I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because here it is. This is your take home. Faith is desperate, humble, and knows what the need is. Notice how Jesus describes this man. He doesn't pay attention to anyone or anything but his own sin and his own failures. He offers no excuses. He doesn't try to define it. He just says, I'm here with a broken heart and a contrite spirit and a broken life. Think of David in Psalm 51 when he's just broken. So... To be saved is quite simply to look to Jesus and ask for forgiveness of your sinfulness. It's to really want Jesus to be your Messiah, to be your Savior, to be your Lord. Paul answers the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 when he says, Good sir, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now notice what it says. It says, Believe in in Jesus, not about Jesus. Too many people in this world and in church can win every Bible trivia game, but they don't know Jesus. They know about Him, but they don't believe in Him. 
Jesus is the only reason and only way you and I can be justified and saved. The Pharisee thanked God for giving him righteousness and then framed his case with, look what I do and what I've done. The tax collector simply looked at Jesus. He realized there was nothing good about him, nothing good in him. He realized there was nothing that he did or could do, would ever measure up. He just said, oh God, don't do to me what I deserve. And wouldn't you know it that Jesus in the next passage would explain that he would die for tax collectors. He would die, by the way, for Pharisees. And he would be raised again to eternal life as that's proof that God the Father accepts that sacrifice. And Jesus declares that the tax collector is justified. What? What? Why? This is a pimp. This is a drug dealer. This is the strip club owner. You've got to realize what a shock to the system this would have been to the hearers. This is the punchline of the whole story. These people who trusted in themselves are now dealt this stunning blow. This is, it's not just that a Pharisee and a tax collector are in the same temple together on the same level. No, Jesus says the outcast sinner who pleads for mercy, he leaves justified. Actually, he leaves more upright than the Pharisee. That is scandalous. If you read it a couple of chapters later, the audience wants Jesus dead because they don't like that. If you're taking the Psalms and Proverbs challenge with me yesterday, you would have read Psalm 25. That's all of this in the words of David. Now, let's be sure we don't reverse things, though. Momentary commercial. We all know that the Pharisee is the bad guy, don't we? We all know that the tax collector is the good guy. But wait, what about us? See, don't become preoccupied with your sin like the Pharisee was with his righteousness. See, today now it's almost like we like to navel gaze about our sin. Nowadays we hear testimonies and it's almost like testimonies are a competition as to who can sound more decrepit. Oh, really? Yeah, I was saved. Yeah, really? Yeah, I hated people. And Oh, really? Yeah, I was saved. Yeah, I murdered people. Yeah, oh yeah, I was saved. I was a drug dealer, murdered people, and I did this. And it's just like testimonies have to be big and grandiose. And bra- In fact, why can't we just say, no, no, actually, I was a really good person, really trying to do what's right, and God saved me from my righteousness. So make sure we don't reverse this. Make sure we don't become proud in our humility. Make sure we don't let our testimonies become a competition of, I'm worse than you are. Listen, make your salvation always and only about Jesus Christ. Don't change the story by simply swapping the roles. Don't be like the, the person where we say, now the Pharisee is the bad guy, and where we go, yeah, that self-righteous little snob. I remember talking about that. And remember, remember about the movies when I said talking about the movies? Remember how we always, you know the other thing that makes a movie really good is we like an underdog. And so the tax collector becomes our little underdog. And so now we turn on the, church, on, the, on the Pharisee. And so in church, we love the tax collector and we hate the Pharisee. But don't be, like, don't be like the Sunday school teacher who said to his students at the end of this and said, okay, children, let's bow our heads and thank God we're not like the Pharisee. <laughs> so be careful. Because remember that in Luke 19, 
We see what a true tax collector looks like. Don't think that this guy beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and then left and continued on in the life of a tax collector. That's why Zacchaeus is there in chapter 19. Because when the wee little man gets saved, guess what he does? He has radical life transformation. And he starts to live a life in response to grace. See, no one who receives mercy and grace just doesn't change. If you've received supernatural, God-like grace and mercy, you are forever changed by it. Now, there are implications to this, all right? In Galatians chapter 4, Paul says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, why did, you, why did I pick that random verse? Well, let me get really, really personal. And let me do this on some of our toes. And then I think I can run faster scared than you mad. If the Godhead had chosen that Jesus would come to earth in 2015 on Labor Day weekend, it would be mainline conservative Christianity, even evangelical Christianity that Jesus would receive the most opposition from. That's potentially us. Now the air just got sucked out of the room, didn't it? How often have you and I thought and prayed and acted like the Pharisee in Acts 18? But in reverse. We want to be the tax collector, but we act like the Pharisee. See, sometimes we even sing hymns like Pharisees. There's a great hymn of the faith. Have you, how many of you have heard of this one? I wonder have I done my best for Jesus. Have you heard that hymn? Put your hand up if you've heard that hymn before. All right, it's dating some of you, I know. All right, but, but it, it's, I wonder have I done my best for Jesus. I'm sorry, what's up with a hymn like that? I wonder, have I done my best for you? I already know the answer to that. No. Jesus knows that we're unable to do anything for him, for him apart from Him and His Spirit. Listen to the ver- words of this hymn. The hours that I have wasted are so many. The hours I've spent for Christ so few. Because of all my lack of love for Jesus, I wonder if His heart is breaking too. How depressing. Jesus died for my sin and our sins. Past, present, future. His heart broke once for all. God doesn't look at me and his heart break now. He looks at me and says, mine. He looks at you and says, mine. I love the, 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 the writer goes on. I wonder, have I cared enough for others or have I let them die alone? I might have helped a wanderer to the Savior, the seeds of precious life I might have sown. How many are the lost that I have lifted? How many are the chains I've helped to free? I wonder, have I done my best for Jesus when he is dead? Come off. That's, that's like a bad hymn. Who sings this? Do you see the problem? This song makes it sound like you and I have some charge over our own righteousness. This is what it looks like to trust in yourself and not trust in Jesus Christ. Paul never wonders about doing his best, but simply living life in the shadow of the cross. And see, here's what happens when you live life like this. You know the problem with the Pharisee? There's a huge disconnect between public life and private life. Can I ask, is this the real version of you? Is the Sunday version of you the real you? Or is there a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, start to get better Saturday, and now this is the Sunday me? 
What version of you? There's a huge sham between what you do versus why you do it. Remember, I think, listen, I'm not like this, this, and this, but I'm definitely not like him. There's a massive misunderstanding of what being saved looks like. And you want me to get really personal? Okay, maybe I will. What about music or clothes or service in church or attendance to church or standards we have or traditions we keep? What do you wear and why do you wear it, especially to church? I I love it when people say, I want to put my best on for God. Well, what the heck does that look like? What does your best look like before a holy God? What does that mean? Why? What do you think of those who don't dress the way you do or think the way you should or sing the right songs or talk the right way? Now, I'm not talking about clear-cut sin. God's Word tells us about lust and modesty and about all those things. But I'm talking about pants versus skirts and ties versus polo shirts. What about when unchurched teenagers or young adults who dress poorly or maybe, are you ready for this, smoke or have tattoos or piercings? What about those who are rough around the edges? What about those people who wear hats and doilies to church? What do we think of them? Are we in, instantly critical? Are we instant uppity? Do you compare or are you patient? Do you automatically think critically or are you compassionate? Now, I'm not talking about, and I'm not just talking about the unsaved. What do you think the Pharisees thought of John the Baptist? Jesus was condemned because he let a prostitute wash his feet. Church, listen, a few weeks ago, uh, Calvary Baptist had Teen Challenge come and present their ministry. But are we ready for them? Would we be ready for a group of men and women who've been gloriously saved from sin and addiction to drugs and worse? And, and, and do you think when they come that they're going to act and look just like us? No. Church, we all need to listen. So here's what I want you to take away. Nothing we do is the basis for God's acceptance of us. Nothing you do makes God choose you no matter how righteous you are or how unrighteous you are, no matter how moral you are or religious you are, whether God has produced all that in you, you've produced that. Don't trust in anything that is in you or that you do as the basis of your justification before God. That is not how you are accepted. Trust in Christ. His blood and righteousness as the sole basis of your justification. Number two, we stand before God because of Jesus only. John Piper writes that I put it on my Facebook page this morning. Take heart in your struggle with indwelling sin and remember that your standing as a cherished child of God is not based in yourself, but in Christ alone. Let me quote another song, a song that I really love, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. The writer says, When Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see Him there who made an end of all my sin because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. See, there's no I in that. When you feel like a failure, where do you look if not to Christ for your righteousness? When Satan accuses you or I and says, you've never done anything perfectly motivated. You've never done anything. And he reminds us of God's holy standard and his perfection. How are you going to fight back except by saying, listen, Satan, all I have is Christ. Here it is. Thirdly, anything good we now do is because of Christ, not because of us. 
Never forget that all of your good attitudes and your good intentions and all your good works will serve at the judgment, not as the grounds of your acceptance, but of the proof of it. In other words, one man says, don't confuse the fruit for the root. Don't confuse the fruit for the root. So you don't, you, so again, I, I love Debbie and I love Debbie out of a response of her love for me. I don't not cheat on her and say, no, you owe me. What a hollow marriage that would be. I love her because she loves me. I respond to her all the time. This is what God does. And so number four, the good news is that because of Jesus, justification is possible for everybody. So it doesn't matter if you're the best sinner in the room or you're the worst one. Every one of you can know Jesus. So whether you think, you know what, Steve? I'm the best of sinners. Good. You need Jesus. Or if you'd be like, Steve, I am the worst of sinners. Good. You need Jesus. Because Romans 5 tells us, as by one man's disobedience, the many were appointed sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be appointed righteous. And lastly, because Jesus did it all, he alone gets all the glory. Give him the glory. Give Christ all the glory, not just half of it. Half is the work of pardoning sin by becoming our wrath-absorbing punishment. But the other half is the work of providing our perfection of resting in this. See, listen, don't wake up tomorrow or from your afternoon Baptist nap, okay? Don't wake up and think about yourself or think about others. Wake up and think about God. That will affect the way you see yourself and the way you... Listen, you can think I'm crazy, but here's what I do every day. I get up, I go into my bathroom, shut the door, look in the mirror in all of my regal morning glory and go, you know what, Steve? You belong to God. You're His child. He loves you. And it affects my day because I think much of God, which helps me think rightly of me and others. Don't rob the Lord of his glory. Remember when John got baptized, he referenced Philippians 3 because we have the story of a Pharisee who gets saved. He was a guy named Paul. And when Paul gets saved in Philippians chapter 3, that is his testimony. Paul would say, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything he'd ever done, he says, I give it all up just so I can know Jesus. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And that word rubbish, by the way, is a very sanctified way of saying what comes out of the hind end of people. That's what he's saying. I count it all as this. Why? That I may have eternal life? Nope. That I can live forever with my goodness? Nope. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Notice, having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And that's why we're going to end this morning with Christ is enough. If you don't know Him, Talk to me after. He's amazing. Christians, are you trying to know Jesus but live in your strength? Let me say this very pastorally. Stop it. 
That's not the way God wants you to live. That's burdensome. Don't leave here if you don't need love or some prayer. You have questions or frustrations. But we want to teach you this song if you don't know. It's called Christ is Enough. I'm going to ask our music team to come as I close in prayer. Father God, again, Lord, I beg of you that my brothers and sisters, my friends, even my own family will have heard a much better sermon than I have preached. Holy Spirit of the living God, I pray that I will now trust that you are enough and not allow Satan to whisper in my ear that the job wasn't done enough. But I pray that people here will truly believe that Christ is enough and if they are afraid or they're hurting or they've got questions or doubts or they don't know, that they won't leave. Father, give them courage to ask. But help us, every one of us, to leave here and know that Christ is enough. In Jesus' name, amen.